So I, I thought about preaching on Philemon, uh, but I decided against it. But I, I would say that it's essentially a model of how we can take Christ's example and apply it to real situations. Um, so I would encourage you to study it and, and uh, think on it more. Uh, but now I'm going to read the gospel section, uh, gospel passage for the day, which is uh, Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, which is titled, The Cost of Discipleship. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so before I begin with this passage, I I'd like to back up a little bit. Uh, the parable immediately before today's reading is about a man who gave a great dinner and invited many, but they didn't come. One said he had just bought some land. Another said he had just bought some oxen. And another said he had just been married. So that's possessions, work, and spouse, all barriers that kept people out of the party. And then in today's passage, Jesus says we must hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, life itself, and all our possessions. Wow, that's, that's kind of a lot. Jesus asks his disciple not just to believe certain things, but to change their whole lives for his sake. He was trying to build a new world, one disciple at a time, and his new world would need to be so different that his followers had to abandon everything that tied them down. Try to put yourself in the frame of mind of those first century followers. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. Okay, so that's the whole family, and by extension, the clan and the tribe. At that time and in that place, family, clan, and tribe defined your identity. So the Romans um, provided security in the form of an occupying army, but your family provided everything else. Jesus was saying, no, you're not part of that family. You're part of my family. But by the way, so is everyone else. So take what you know about supporting those who are related to you by blood or marriage and apply it to those who are related to you by my blood. 
Now, Jesus knew it wouldn't be easy. He told his disciples to take up their cross, which was a way of saying, be willing to die for the sake of my vision of a new world, God's realm here on earth. These days, we don't have an occupying Roman government who crucifies rebels and dissenters. And we don't so explicitly rely on our families to support us. So how can we translate Jesus' message to modern America? Well, let's start by thinking about our priorities. How do we decide what matters? How do we choose what to give up and what to hold on to? Our highest priority should be Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. That word Lord, it means that he's in charge and he sets the priorities. Well, as I said a month ago, Jesus has not yet appeared on clouds of glory, so we have to rely on what people wrote about him 2,000 years ago, plus the other 2,000 years uh, covered by the Hebrew scriptures uh, describing people's encounters with God. Jesus told us how to interpret those writings. He said, in Matthew's telling, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So whenever we have a question about how to interpret the Bible or how God is leading us, we should discern what it means to love God and love our neighbor. One way to show our love of God is to worship. As many of you know, I went through some training that resulted in a certificate in congregational leadership from the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary. One course was on Reformed Worship. Since Calvin's time, we have followed a fourfold ordo. Uh, That is, regardless of the details of the order of worship, we follow a basic structure, starting with gathering, and then the word, and then the Eucharist or Thanksgiving, and then sending. Within that structure, there are some things that are prescribed and other things that are very flexible. So the gathering phase must include confession and an assurance of pardon. It's not considered worship if their scriptures are not both read and preached. But which version of the Bible? Who does the preaching? And what does it even mean to preach? I assert that what we did in Fired Up, which is where you know, somebody would write the Bible verse and then we would talk about it, I say that that is preaching. Some preachers use media clips. Some sermons are five minutes, not this one. Some sermons are an hour. Again, not this one. Oh, and what kind of music do we use for our worship? Where do we meet? When do we meet? Everything else is flexible. So I'm going to take a page out of Susan's book and use the PowerPoint a little bit. Um, Carrie Newhoff is an author and consultant in church leadership. And he recently reposted a blog with a list of things churches must be willing to give up. Music, politics, style, buildings, money, time, and our lives. Again, this is, this is tough. This is a lot. 
So let's start at the top with music. Now, I love it, and I'm, I'm so glad, Lori, you, you must have known what I was preaching about playing the organ today. I love it when she plays the organ. I love the anthems that the choir sings. That's why I come Wednesday nights, even if I can't be here that Sunday, so I can sing those anthems. I love most of the hymns that we sing as a congregation. Um, but I don't listen to any of that in the car. And I'm guessing that most of you don't either. Right? Classical music radio stations are dying out around the country because that's just not what people listen to. Now, you could argue that worship is supposed to be different from pop culture, but I should remind you that at least some of the hymns that we sing would have been considered pop culture at that time. Politics. Now, Newhoff was particularly targeting those churches who preach that being Christian means thou shalt vote Republican. But I need to remind myself that being a Christian means that I should owe no allegiance to any political party. As I saw on a, the sign on a church by my house, we're, we are saved not by a donkey or an elephant, but by the lamb. Both Jesus and his apostles, like Paul, preached not that the political structure should be changed, but that we are called to live in a different kind of kingdom. Yes, participate in politics. Yes, rely on your beliefs, including your religious beliefs, when you vote. But no, Jesus was neither a Republican nor a Democrat. His message transcends any box that any political party would try to put him in. Style. So by that, Newhoff meant that we, we shouldn't fight about whether the, the carpet should be blue or gray or brown or things like that. But I would also say that we need to relax about what people wear and how they look. Uh, so two people that I've invited to worship over the years, you know, one of the first things they ask me is, what should I wear so that I fit in? Uh, I'm not personally a fan of uh, tattoos or piercings but I tolerate them in Jesse, so, so should we all and, and in anybody who shows up. On the flip side, so I, I attended a, a retreat at a Jesuit retreat center, and so I went to a Catholic mass, and they had the, the, the whole thing, the smells and bells, right? It's not worship if there's not incense. Um, shorts and t-shirts were fine in the congregation, but that priest better be wearing his multi-layered liturgical vestments. Uh, each, each layer has a particular meaning. Buildings. So many of you have heard me say that this sanctuary was designed by a sadistic madman, right? It's, it's not a rectangle, it's a rhombus with 60-degree angles north and south and 120-degree angles east and west. Um, nothing straight. The pews are really long, so you get over to your pew, and then you got to scoot along to get to where you're, where you want to sit. And then there's this big wooden bar across the center of your back that's uncomfortable. All right, I've said my piece, and I'll try to let it go. But the the point I'm trying to make is that this space is not necessarily welcoming to a visitor, especially if that visitor is either unchurched, never been in a sanctuary, or has been um, hurt by the church in, the, in their past. 
The chapel, on the other hand, is, is nice and intimate. And, and, and I think it's a really nice space. Yes, it has pews, but uh, they're not so long. You can get through in them and everything, and, and, it, and everybody's close. It feels, feels more, uh, um, like I said, intimate. But it's dark. It's really dark. On the other hand, I've been in wonderful worship services in a city park or at a church camp, right? And God is just as much there as God is here or the chapel, right? God is everywhere. God is not just in buildings confining. All right, money. So we're searching for an installed pastor, and I, it's so wonderful that the myth is online and live, and, and any day now, I'm sure we'll find the right pastor for us. Um, but people are, are rightly worried about where the money comes from to, to pay them. And any organization needs to have regular income to fund operations, and then we're also in the midst of a capital campaign. Now, I'm not going to tell anybody how much they should give, but, but Newhoff's basic point is that we need to put our money individually and as a congregation where we think it serves God best. Because the church budget is ultimately a theological statement. Time. So I invest a lot of time in building God's kingdom in some visible way, right? I'm, I'm standing in front of you all preaching. It's going out on the internet um, to reach who knows how many people. Um, probably not that many, but theoretically millions of people could, could watch it. Um, I do you know, campus ministry and other, other visible things, right? There are other, others in the congregation who, who also do visible things. Uh, whether they're the ushers or uh, Mary and Lori and Jeff uh, that, that lead the, the, the music uh, part of the worship. Um, and then there are others who do a whole lot behind the scenes that are not, not seen. You know, the trustees do a lot, of, a lot of work. There's other people who do a lot behind the scenes. So I, I don't want to minimize any of that. But the, uh, beyond that, uh, what, what Newhoff is getting at is is organizing our lives so that time with God and with God's people is a priority. So finally, our lives. So that's what Jesus meant by taking up your cross. He didn't mean to wear a little lapel pin or earrings or a, or a necklace like some people do. He meant live your life in such a way that you will be building God's kingdom here and now, even if it means giving up your time, your money, your relationships, your status, your reputation, and ultimately, even your life. So I think I've mentioned the so-called pilgrimage I'm on called Find Your Inner Monk. The basic theme of the program is to identify your priorities and then build your life in such a way that reflects those priorities. Just as a church budget is a theological document, and so is a personal budget, well, so is a calendar. It's a, it's a, it's a way of expressing your priorities. If I say that a stronger relationship with my wife is a priority, but then spend 14 hours a day, seven days a week in my office, well, then obviously that's not that much of a priority, right? 
If I say that sharing God's love with people outside this congregation is a priority, but never actually talk to any of them, well, then it's not really a priority. A recent illustration in this Find Your Inner Monk lesson lesson is uh, used Legos. So let's suppose you have a limited supply of Legos, like this small 221 brick set. You build all of these things that are shown in this picture. Um, I don't know how well you can all see them in, in the congregation, but at any rate, there's a little house, a lighthouse, a sailboat, an a airplane, a bunch of other things. So let's suppose you build all those things. And then you say, I want, I want to build something else. I want to build something better. Well, the only way you can build that something better is to take apart something good. You have to tear down something good to build something better. In the same way, we have a limited supply of time and money and energy. We can get more money, I suppose, but each day we only have 24 hours to spend. And we have to spend some of it on sleep. So how we structure our lives, how we spend our resources, how we act in the world will determine the impact that those hours have. So I'd like you to imagine a world in which this building doesn't exist. Okay? A world in which we don't gather on Sunday mornings at 9.45. A world in which we don't have any paid staff. No Jeff, no Lori, no Katie, no Tina, no pastor, no preschool. Nothing. Would we build what we have now? Would we hire the same statistic madman to design our sanctuary? I hope not. Uh, but would we have pews? Would we have an organ? Would we start a preschool to serve our community? What would we do? Well, some friends of mine are in that exact situation uh, right now. Uh, Wayne, the leader of my elk hunting party, and Patrick, a pastor, are starting a new church called Crossroads. Since January, they've been meeting in a classroom in McNutt Hall. And right now, as I speak, that's why I checked my watch, 10.30, they started, um, they're having their first worship service in their new space. After considering all of their alternatives, they decided to rent the former vineyard space. They surely won't have pews, so I saw it, it all set up. They had chairs, kind of like the, those example chairs that we got. Uh, they were sitting down in the, in the um, lobby for a while. Um, I don't know what they'll do for music. When they were in McNutt, they were using YouTube. The space they're renting has a great sound system, but no organ. Uh, what will be their style of worship? Well, Patrick was educated as a Baptist, so I suspect their worship would be recognizable to anyone out of that tradition. But I can almost 100% guarantee that they won't have incense. Liturgy? Well, th that's considered a non-liturgical tradition, meaning that they don't have the, the different colors for the paraments, and uh, they don't acknowledge things like Christ the King Sunday and um, Ash Wednesday and things like that. 
Uh, so I don't know what kind of liturgy they might have. Uh, choir? Probably not. But Crossroads is still meeting on Sunday mornings in a dedicated sanctuary because of tradition. So let me describe another possible vision of worship. And let me uh, qualify this saying, I don't know if this is a good idea. Um, but, you know, sometimes people will say, if you can dream it, you can do it. And that's just a lie. But what's true is, if you can't dream it, you can't do it. So let's dream a little. Let's imagine a group of maybe a dozen people. Maybe more, maybe less. About a dozen. They meet on, let's say, Tuesday night in the back of Hopper's. You know, they, Hopper's has a kind of a back room there. So they all arrive. They place their food and drink orders. Maybe some people order beer or wine. Maybe not. Uh, if I were there, I wouldn't because I don't drink. But whatever. While they're waiting for their food, one person leads them in a prayer of confession, and then they talk about some things going on in their lives, some things going on in the community and in the world, and then someone leads them in a prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. Oh, the food is here. So they say a quick prayer of blessing, and then while they eat, someone reads a Bible verse, gives a little bit of the context, and some interpretation based on what, what they see in the world, and then they have a discussion. Some people have read the passage ahead of time, some haven't. Some have studied the Bible a lot, some are brand new. Some are used to just being told what to think, where others openly challenge orthodoxy and traditional ways of interpreting the passage. As the meal wraps up, the server clears away the dishes, and someone pulls out a portable communion set, blesses, breaks the bread, and then passes around the bread and a cup uh, to do communion by intention. Now they've all been fed both physically and spiritually, so it's time to go. Brief unison prayer. They use the same prayer every week because it reflects their shared beliefs, and shared understanding of their mission in the world, and then they depart. Now, some people maybe stay at the bar. Uh, some people maybe go up the street to soda and scoops. Some people have to rush home to be with their kids. Um, whatever. So now, let me ask you, is that worship? Is it any more or less worshipful than what we're doing now? Is God any more or less present in that gathering than they are with us? Would it have more or less impact on the lives of those who gather? Would it be more or less accessible for people who do not currently attend a church? Well, I believe that such a service would be worship that is acceptable to the God that I love. I believe that it would reach different people than we see, see worshiping today. More? More people? I, I honestly don't know. Like I said, I don't know if this would be a good idea or not. More meaningful? Well, again, I don't know. 
But we need to be open to the leading of the Spirit to explore these different kinds of worship experiences. We need to let go of everything that we think is necessary, but ultimately is ancillary to our true priorities. Loving God and loving our neighbor. James Clear once wrote, If you're unwilling to adapt to the future, you'll justify the past. What we do each Sunday and where we do it and how we do it is our past. So let's open our hearts and minds to a future where we open the doors of God's kingdom to everyone who needs to know the God that we love. Amen.